Welcome to the Daily Bolster. Each day we welcome transformational executives to share their real-world experiences and practical advice about scaling yourself, your team, and your business. Welcome to the Daily Bolster. I'm Matt Blumberg, co-founder and CEO of Bolster. And today we are going uh, in deep with Jeff Epstein. Uh, Jeff is an operating partner at Bessemer Venture Partners. Uh, he's the former chief financial officer of uh, lots of companies and public companies, including Oracle. Uh, Jeff was also, uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, have Jeff on my board at my last company, Return Path, for about eight years. Uh, and Jeff, it's great to have you here today. Thanks for joining. Matt, great to see you and thank you for inviting me. Um, so I always love to uh, start these uh, sort of in-depth ones with a quick uh, sort of career journey or, or arc of your career. So um, obviously I noted a couple places you've been CFO, but, but give everyone a sense of, uh, you know, sort of where, where you started and where you've ended and, and the big steps along the way. I went to business school at Stanford and then ended up joining uh, an investment bank. It was then First Boston, it's now Credit Suisse, doing mergers and acquisitions in the 1980s in the media industry. So I was representing buyers and sellers of television stations and newspapers we rep represent ABC in the merger with Capital Cities Communications. And I love the media industry and I love learning about finance. And then one of my clients was a television programming company called King World. Uh, they'd had Wheel of Fortune, Jeopardy, Oprah Winfrey, so big shows, but a pretty small company publicly held. They had an accounting CFO and they wanted a Wall Street CFO. Hmm. And I thought, do I want to spend my career as an investment banker or would I like to move into the CFO side? And I thought that I looked around at the investment bankers that I knew. And they were all very good salespeople. And I, my strength was being an analyst. I think I was an okay salesperson, but not nearly as good as them. And so I said, maybe I should go from the sell side to the buy, to be a buyer of services where the CFO gets to hire the bankers instead of having to persuade right. them to hire you. Uh, and so it was a great decision. I was 32 years old, became the uh, CFO of a New York Stock Exchange company. And that was the beginning of a 25 year career uh, as CFO at different companies. Um, so you were uh, Advo, DoubleClick, Oracle. Um, what were not not Advo? It was King, King World. Oh, King World. Okay. And then then uh, I became the CFO of DoubleClick during the internet advertising boom. Uh, the first internet advertising ad ran in 1995, and I joined DoubleClick in 1998. So the industry was tiny. My friends and I all felt that this we were at the beginning of a revolution in advertising. And in fact, today, internet advertising is far bigger than television or any other medium. And we were absolutely right there. And DoubleClick became the largest internet advertising technology company. Uh, it's, it, was, it was sold to Google and now the Justice Department is trying to get Google to sell it. So it's, it comes full circle. Uh, and then I became the CFO of Nielsen uh, Media Research a Division of, of Nielsen. Uh, and we had Nielsen Net Ratings and Internet Ratings Business and then the CFO of Oracle. Got it. And um, along the way, uh, I know you've been a, a board member of lots of companies, some uh, private, some small, some large and public. What are what are some of the more notable ones? Uh, so uh, I joined the board of Priceline in 2003, and I served on the board for 16 years. We acquired Booking.com and we changed the name to Booking Holdings. It became the largest hotel travel agent in the world. And the market value went from $1 billion to $80 billion over those 16 years. So pretty extraordinary. And what was fascinating was booking was a very decentralized business. Booking, Priceline, Kayak, Agoda, OpenTable, all separate businesses all run independently. Oracle was a very centralized business. So while I was the CFO of Oracle, on the extreme of centralization, 
I was also a board member at Booking on the extreme of decentralization. And I saw two very well-run companies with two very different tactics of how to organize large enterprises, both of which were successful. So fascinating. View. Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. A lot of execs and, and CEOs will ask me, hey, do you think I should take an outside board seat? You know, I'm really busy with my day job. Um, and my answer to them is always yes, that, uh, you know, you, you just you come away from someone else's board meeting with a lot of learnings and uh, a new way of looking at your own business. And um, I always think it's really short sighted of companies when they have policies that say their people can't serve on outside boards for that exact reason. I think it always made me a better CFO to be a chair of an audit committee, another company, and it may be a better board member to be a, a CFO so that it's very symbiotic. Yeah. Um, so uh, let me take a quick detour on one thing. I knew you had been on the board of uh, Priceline slash bookings for a long time. I didn't realize it was 16 years. Um, what do you think about board tenure? Um, you know, did you feel like you were still as effective at year 16 as you were uh, early on, um, you know, when maybe you had fresher eyes? Well, I, I can see the argument that you bring a certain point of view to a board and your worldview doesn't change very much. And so if you bring in a new board member and to bring in a new board member, you have to kick the old one out to make room for them. Uh, that over time, that's a, a, a good strategy. On the other hand, to take the extreme case, I think uh, there was, there was a, 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 a activists were trying to get Warren Buffett to leave the Coca-Cola board. If I had Warren Buffett on my board, I would never kick him off. I mean, why is one of the smartest people in the world, the best investor in the history of the world? Why would you ever want to have that person leave your board? So I think in concept, the idea of board refreshment is a good idea. But I think if you have a terrific board member who's uniquely talented, you certainly would want to keep them as long as you could. Yeah, that's that's a fair point. And, um, uh, you know, and, and presumably good boards have some board members of long tenure and, you know, some that do, you know, three, four or five years and, and roll off. Uh, so good, good to have a mix. Um, and if I remember correctly, there were some other people on that on the booking board that were there for a very long time with you as well. Uh, we ended up putting in a board uh, uh, refreshment policy, and I don't remember what it, we didn't have it at the beginning, but at some point, I think it was maybe ten years or twelve years, something like that. Yeah. Um, well, so let's back up and talk a little bit about um, the CFO role. Um, one of the things that um, uh, that I always thought was was so interesting about your journey is that you um, operated as a CFO in some really different businesses. Uh, you know, King World, very different from DoubleClick, obviously some things in common there, but pretty different. And then Oracle um, was completely different. And, you know, even Nielsen was a bit different as well. Uh, and, uh, you know, I know there's sort of a, a you know, conventional wisdom is that CFO is one of those roles you know, maybe HR is similar or, or legal is similar where it's maybe easier to switch industries than if you're in product or if you're in sales. Um, so I'd love to hear you talk about that for a minute. What, what, did you find those transitions easy or not easy? How did you go about um, ramping up on a completely new industry when you come in at, you know, near the top of the organization? Warren Buffett has this concept of a circle of competence. He says you should invest within your circle of competence and of course, why would anyone invest outside your circle of competence? And I think of the same thing in terms of my career, investing my time the same way to invest money. And so I always wanted to develop a circle of competence and then over time, expand the circle. Uh, you, you just learn more things. And so if, if I started out uh, focusing on the media industry at First Boston, knew a lot about television, 
and entertainment. And so the transition from banking in media to being a media CFO was pretty easy because it was the same industry. And then DoubleClick was a half. And, and of course, King World had advertising. So I learned a lot about the advertising business. DoubleClick was an internet advertising technology business, half advertising slash media, half technology. So the advertising half was something I was familiar with. The technology part was new. and But it was sort of a, a, an easy transition for me to make because I knew half of it. And then once I, and DoubleClick was a SaaS uh, ad serving company. So I got to learn software and look, software as a service very early on in the, in the SaaS world or cloud, cloud computing. Uh, and then Nielsen was data about television. So data was new, but television was familiar. Uh, and then Oracle was uh, was software. And so there was some relate relationship there to DoubleClick. So it wasn't a leap from oil and gas to television or vice versa. It was incremental steps, each step many years. And I read a lot and learned a lot and, and uh, was, was able, I think, to, to learn quite a bit about the, the new companies. The biggest challenge anytime you join a new industry, your company is actually the jargon and the acronyms, because I literally would write down, I keep a glossary up here of the hundred things. And the first week, I would, people would be talking about all these different words and acronyms that I didn't know, and I would just keep a list. And then a week later, someone would explain what it was just in a conversation and I'd cross it off. And then at the end of the time, I'd have 20 things that I didn't know were, and I'd look them up on Wikipedia or ask somebody about it. But over the course of three months, you sort of learn the language. And over the course of six months, I think you can learn the fundamentals of the business. The second difference besides the industry is size. And that's quite a bit different. So uh, King World had hundreds of employees. Uh, DoubleClick had, we grew to thousands of employees. And then Nielsen had over 10,000 employees and Oracle had 100,000 employees. So at each step, it was sort of a different scale. Nielsen was very helpful for me when I started Oracle because it was sort of a halfway scale uh, opportunity to, to the Oracle scale. And it, it gave me a sense of how large enterprises, global enterprises uh, work at scale, uh, both what to do and what not to do, because there were, there were some challenges at that time in, in the way Nielsen was organized. So let me, so let me, I want to come back to that, but let me back up for a second. Do you think it's um, possible and then do you think it's advisable to make a bigger industry shift? Could you have gone from digital media to oil and gas um, or is it just, you know, bridge too far? I, I think it's certainly possible. Uh, and if you think about McKinsey and consulting firms like that, often people early in their careers work on oil and gas one year and then Right. retailing the next year and, and they get a broad exposure and they just get up to speed quickly. Uh, of course, at the partner level, they probably specialize. And so by the time you're at the senior level at CFO, I would say it's rare, uh, but it does happen. For instance, the GE, if you think about, if you remember back to when Jack Welsh uh, was having a succession planning at GE and there were two other people who didn't get the GE CEO job, one, I think, became the CEO of Boeing and one became yeah. the CEO of, of uh, Boeing or something. Yeah. Uh, completely different businesses. And of course, GE itself is a conglomerate with, with 100 different businesses. So there certainly are certain managers who, who can do well in, in different industries. It's, I think it's harder. It's a high, higher degree, harder degree of difficulty. Yeah. Um, so let's uh, uh, zoom forward a little bit to your time at Oracle. Uh, so you were CFO there for four or five years, right? Uh, two and a half years. Two and a half years. It probably yeah. felt like four or five years. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, most people uh, in in the world of tech and startups 
don't see a company that large. Um, and and it can't even necessarily conceive of what it's like to have hundreds of thousands of employees. Um, so I'd love to hear a couple of stories from your time at, at Oracle that um, you know are either either fun or interesting, um, you know, or sort of put put things in context. Um, you know, bonus if they're about a sailboat uh, uh, or uh, Larry Ellison, but certainly don't have to be. Well, I did get to sail on the uh, Trimaran uh, America's Cup sailboat, which if you ever get a chance to do that, they go 40 miles an hour uh, and they you know, fly out of the water. It's just a pretty incredible experience. Yeah. But the, before I came to Oracle, I had this vision that Oracle is the largest, most successful enterprise software company in the world. I'm going to arrive and I'm going to show up at my desk. I'll push a button and every number I need will be at my fingertips. I don't even have to ask questions. It'll just be right there. And the first thing they did is they said, here's your office and here are all the loose leaf notebooks of the budget and the plans and everything. And they were four inch thick, black loose leaf notebooks. And we were basically living, it was all computerized, but they printed out the, the reports. <laughs> and, and so I said, this, is, this was oh, 15 years ago. So, you know, I'm sure it's improved since then. But I was surprised at how manual certain things still were. Yeah, well, when, when, when did the company get started? It was started in the late 70s, right? Exactly, yeah. Exactly. yeah. There 70s. probably were some legacy systems and processes and that not uh, kind of contemporary dashboard instrumentation. Well, I think, you know, enterprise software for many years was not nearly as good as consumer software mm -hmm. in terms of the, in the user interface. And so it did enormous numbers of calculations very quickly and it calculated billions of numbers, but the the user interface and getting information out of the system was historically poor. And I think it's, it's dramatically improved over the last number of years. So uh, what I found out was that I had, we had 100,000 employees and I had 5,000 people reporting to me in finance, which was of course a very different scale than what I've seen. And that's larger than you know most companies. <laughs> that's right. And so the question you have as an executive is, what do you delegate and what do you personally do? So when you're an individual contributor, you do 100%, you have no one to delegate to, and then you become a manager and you maybe do half and half and you're sort of a player coach and you do some things but delegate other things. When I was at DoubleClick, I probably, by the end of that time period, we had 2000 employees, I probably personally did 25% and delegated 75%. So I would personally write my investor presentations and personally go on the investor calls and, uh, but I would, uh, delegate to our controller, leading the audit committee, uh, meeting, discussion of the accounting, things like that. When you have 6,000 people, it's more like 1% and 99%. In fact, if you if I tried to do things myself, the person in that area would say, why am I here? You know, why, why are you doing that? It's my job. And, and so, of course, there were many things where I felt my subordinate was better than me at. I'm, I'm not an accountant, and so I wouldn't uh, want to sort of uh, do the technical accounting. On the other hand, on the Wall Street stuff, I spent my whole career doing that, so I felt pretty capable there, and I had to hold myself back and say, well, yes, Jeff, you can do a very good job on this, but why don't you let the other person do it for a while, try to coach them, train them, maybe they'll end up being better than you, uh, but they'll never be better than you if you don't give them a chance. Right. And That's so, so that, interesting. I was, I was wondering what number you were going to pick. I was figuring it would be five to ten. I didn't think it was going to be one. Yeah, <laughs> well, what does any senior executive do? They, they fundamentally are communicator. They 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 make the decisions, they pick the people, they come up with a strategy, but they don't do the, they don't write presentations usually, they don't make, do the actual work, they don't, uh, they delegate it, they lead. Yeah. 
whether it's a CEO or a CFO. Right, or any, any CXO. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's fascinating. Um, anything else of, of note from, uh, from your time at Oracle? Well, Oracle had 40% profit margin, still does. And I said, well, how do we, how do we get there? And we, I talked to the internal team and realized that we had this philosophy, which I think applies to many businesses, which we called, it had, it's a four-step process, simplify, standardize, centralize, and automate. When you're in a large organization, for whatever reason, any process becomes complex over time. Maybe you make acquisitions, maybe you're going to different countries. So one person leaves, another person comes in, changes something. If you take a fresh look and you say, look at all the ways we're doing, let's say, credit and collections everywhere in the world. We have a thousand people doing credit collections. Are we doing it the simplest possible way? Can we standardize it, do it the same way? Can we centralize it and have it all being done in one building, in one shared service location? And then can we automate it to try to make sure it's mostly done by software and not by people? And if you do that, simplify, standardize, centralize, and automate process for dozens and dozens of processes, you end up with 40% profit margins. So that's uh, that worked pretty well. <laughs> that's really interesting that you, I mean, you probably spend, uh, you know, a, a huge percentage of your time, especially in a GNA function like that, uh, working on yourself as opposed to working on either the business or working on customer facing things. Um, well, these processes, certainly the finance organization was very efficient, but those processes are everywhere there. If you think about sales, famously, if you ask an enterprise salesperson, how much time do they spend with customers and how much time do they spend doing internal filling out Salesforce reports and meetings and things like that, you know, they're going to say a third of the time with customers and two thirds of the time doing administration. And how, how can we as a company change that to two thirds instead of one third and, and double the sales productivity of the team? Right. Same thing with engineering, same thing with every function. Yeah. Um, here's a random Oracle question for you, and then we can um, pivot to another topic. Um, I have often heard that the sort of ending of the fiscal year in January, as opposed to December, was a was an Oracle creation that then sort of moved into Salesforce.com and other enterprise software companies. Um, I'm assuming that was in place before you got there. But what uh, what was the logic of that? It was was it around administrative things, the holidays, buying cycles, a little bit of everything. Trying to be efficient, when I first saw that, I said there were a lot of downsides of this uh, because the last two weeks of the quarter and then the last two weeks of the year, everyone is working very long hours. The salespeople are trying to get the sales done before midnight on the last day of the quarter. All the contracts are coming in. So the contracts department is very busy. The revenue recognition team is very busy. And it creates this enormous amount of work in a very concentrated period of time. And I said, why don't we try to smooth it out and make it more even, and that would be more efficient, which it would be. Uh, but as I got to see it, it's not the way human beings work. And if you think about an NBA basketball game, are people playing 100% the entire game? You know, maybe they are, maybe they're not. Maybe they play really hard the last two to five minutes of the, of the half or the, set, the end of the game, if the game's close, and maybe they, they're resting a little bit because human beings cannot sprint for you know, 48 minutes and, and you can't, in a business environment, you can't work all out all year long. And so the normal human cycle is to work really hard and then to relax and work really hard and relax. So Oracle's fiscal year ends in May. And so May, everyone's very busy. And then you have a couple of weeks in the first week of June to clean things up. And then everyone goes on, vac- the whole company goes on vacation and not much happens in July. And that's perfect because it's the summer and you want to take a vacation in the summer. 
And also at Christmas, you don't want the fiscal year to end December 31st because then everyone's working over Christmas holiday and they're not spending time with their family. So by having a May year and not having a quarter end on December 31st or means that everyone can have Christmas with their family, they can have a reasonable balance. And then the first quarter of the year, things gear up again. And, and then the fourth quarter becomes very busy. So it, it's actually an optimally designed system, not for administration, but for the way human beings have this sort of very intense focus and then relax and focus and relax. That's a, that's a, that's a great way of thinking about it. I haven't, hadn't actually heard that before. The thing I had heard was that it was sort of designed to give uh, sales reps two bites at the apple. They sort of had the end of their own quarter to make a big push and the end of the you know sort of normal calendar quarter uh, where buyers were maybe more likely to, to be making a big push. Um, that too. Yeah. All right, so, so let's talk a little bit about Bessemer. You left Oracle um, and you joined uh, Bessemer um, and eventually became an operating partner. I can't remember if you had an interim step there as venture partner or something. Um, I'd love to hear sort of what inspired you to move to the venture side of things, what inspired you to join Bessemer um, and uh, what, you know, sort of what role do you play as an operating partner? I retired from full-time work 10 years ago and I had my one board price line and you go from a, a very active corporate job where your, your calendar is completely full and you have people calling you all the time. And the day you leave, everyone stops calling and you say, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? <laughs> and I wasn't, I wasn't sure. Uh, but I talked to David Rosenblatt, who, who you know, from, uh, from, from DoubleClick, who had a similar period before he, his current role. And he, over time, just accumulated a series of board roles and advisory roles. Uh, and I tried to follow that. So I basically said yes to everyone whenever they asked me to participate in something. And a friend of mine, Byron Dieter at Bessemer, said, why don't you come by Bessemer and work part-time as, as, I think he called it, executive residence for three months and see if you can be helpful to our portfolio companies. You've got a lot of great experience. We have, at the time, 100 portfolio companies. Today, 200 portfolio companies. I'm sure there are ways you can be helpful. And so I came up with lots of different ideas. We tried a lot of things. And the thing that worked was I realized that each of our companies had a head of finance, either a CFO or VP finance, and none of them knew each other. And so I created a peer group. We call it the Bessemer Venture Partners CFO Council. And now we meet uh, once a quarter on Zoom, twice a year in person. We, ha we have online discussions of various topics. We have an online platform using software where people can ask each other questions and answers every day. And now everyone's part of this community. So I've created and I lead this community of CFOs and it's turned out to be extremely valuable. And now Bessemer hired a whole community team to do this with engineering and product right. and sales and, and has through trial and error, I sort of created this idea and, and it worked. And now Bessemer is rolling out to all these other functions. So that's worked out very well. That's great. And do you, do, uh, do you lead investments or do you take board seats when someone else has led the investment? I, I don't have any investment authority. I can invest my own money side by side with Bessemer and I have done often uh, with investment companies. And then I am often an advisor or board member at a Bessemer company if the CEO thinks that I can be valuable independent of Bessemer. So for instance, Twilio was a Bessemer company. Uh, Byron Dieter from Bessemer is on the board and, uh, and the CEO wanted an audit committee chair. He wanted someone with my background. I was introduced by Bessemer, but I'm, a, I'm an independent board member there. Got it. So the boards you're on, um, even if they are Bessemer boards, you you function as an independent. Yeah, I'm never the Bessemer representative. I'm always an independent board member. Mm -hmm. And uh, how many boards are you on today? I'm on four public boards and three private boards. 
and, and then the nonprofit Kaiser Permanente, right. which is a very large $90 billion nonprofit health company, which is both a health, health insurance company and 39 hospitals, 20 plus thousand doctors, uh, large. We, we, we provide healthcare for 25% of all Californians plus other states. So if you think about, um, you know, sort of those three different types of boards, so you're on, you know, a Twilio, right, a large public company, you're on some smaller private company boards, um, you're on a nonprofit, uh, but that's a very large business at Kaiser, even though it's a nonprofit, but regulated uh, sector. What do those three types of boards have in common? Um, do they have a lot in common or a little in common, uh, you know, sort of, especially as you think about your, your role on them? Well, the things they have in common are the governance. So the board member, the board is legally obligated to have a duty of loyalty and a duty of care. And the main job is selecting the CEO and evaluating the CEO. Uh, and then there's the strategy part. They're all to, to greater or less extent uh, invited to participate in the strategy and ask these questions about what decisions have you not yet made that you're thinking about and give opinions about that. The larger companies, the CEO pretty much knows what they want. They have huge staff. They're asking for the input from the board, but the chances are the board's only gonna have minor influence in a, in a well-run large company. Uh, at a small company, the, the CEO really wants, doesn't have anyone to talk to. So the, at a small company, the, the, the board is much more actively involved in, in defining strategy and has more influence on strategy because the CEO needs more help at a smaller company. Uh, in, in the large companies, I'm typically the audit committee chair and the large companies, it's just a very, it's almost like a, it's not a full-time job, but it's a very defined job. The audit committee chair has a role and you're actually doing a particular type of work. Uh, and the smaller companies don't even have audit committees. So, so those are the, the variety of types of things. Do those, um, so that's interesting that there's sort of different degrees of use of the board. Are there um, different, uh, you know, sort of time allocations on things as well? I know, uh, you know, in a separate conversation you and I had, uh, you sort of talked about, hey, you know, board, board meetings have some, um, show and tell component and some strategic decision making um, discussion component. Uh, does the ratio of these those things change uh, small to large? Uh, yes, well, I, part of it is just how many hours you spend. So uh, large a, a large board typically has a two day board meeting four or five times a year plus committee meetings in between that. The very small companies might have monthly board meetings, then they might move to every two months or every three months, and it might only be three hours long. So the large companies typically are more hours. The smaller companies, you might actually spend more time because they want you to come in and they want you to meet with customers. They might want you to they want you to help recruit employees and and do things outside of the board context because they're already paying you to be a board member. They say, why not take advantage of of this extra person who can right. help with all these activities. Uh, the other difference is, uh, I, I would say that is, is whether the company is going through a big change. So if you're doing a big acquisition, there might be a series of meetings. During uh, the financial crisis, I was told the Citibank board meeting had 70 board meetings that year. So you know, every week or twice a week, there was a crisis, something they had to do. So right. that's, of course, an extreme case. If you're making a senior leadership change or uh, a change like we have at Twilio this this last week where we're dramatically changing our organization structure and, and reducing headcount. There were a whole series of meetings over the last two months where the board was actively involved in that. Uh, and then there might be a period where things are pretty much on track and you have fewer board meetings. What is, you know, a lot of our audience are earlier stage founders that, that probably can't contemplate what a two-day board meeting looks like. 
because they're doing one hour board meetings or three hour board meetings. What does a two day board meeting look like? Well, it's a one it's a one day board meeting with one days of committees meetings okay. and then dinner. So the board meeting itself would typically be between I was for large companies it's probably six hours long, hmm. uh, and if you have a big company, you every part of the company is you're talking about each business. So at a company like Twilio, we have many different businesses within Twilio, and we're talking about each of them. We might right. be talking about U.S. and international. We might be talking about our software business versus our communications business. We might be talking about competition, regulation, new products. Right. Uh, there's, you know, if you think about each segment of a board meeting is 30 to 60 minutes long. Yeah, there's more, more segments. segments. All right. Uh, and then tip, there, there might be a board dinner with the board and leadership team together. So 20 or 25 people. Uh, and then uh, committee meetings, there are typically an audit committee, a compensation committee, a nominated governance committee. Some At, at, at uh, Kaiser Permanente, there's a health committee and the community benefit committee. Uh, so uh, there might be other committees as well. Uh, and each of those committee meetings can be two to three hours long. Right. One of the, uh, the things that I think is so interesting about some of the big boards uh, in general, and in particular, some of the ones you've been on is you end up with some board members who you don't, you wouldn't necessarily think of as, oh, that, that's an obvious choice for that board. Um, you know, the, I think the governor of Massachusetts is on the Twilio board with you. I think you've been on boards with, you know, four-star generals, uh, with, uh, you know, Jeff Immelt. How do you find some of those directors adding value or sort of functioning in a high growth tech uh, board where they don't necessarily have the domain coursing through their veins? Well, Jeff Immelt, the former CEO of General Electric and Deval Patrick, former governor of Massachusetts, uh, are both extraordinarily talented individuals who have led very large organizations. And the first, I would say the first thing they, they add, the first value they add is strategy. So they've they've led strategy at their large organizations and figured out how do you make these trade-offs uh, and they're of course they don't board members don't set the strategy but board members if they're good they'll ask terrific questions which can help the company come up with a better strategy secondly is people uh they've they've hired and, and fired hundreds or thousands of people over their careers and seen what works and what doesn't and have a great instinct for people and so giving advice to the ceo on on individual people, just general advice, but also specific advice about these leaders that they, we meet during the course of our board service has been very helpful. And then they've also at scale seen processes that work and processes that don't. So that's very important. Scale is very important. They, when you're a company like Twilio growing from a couple of hundred million dollars in revenue to $4 billion in revenue, uh, there's new things that we've never done before that, that both Deval and Jeff have seen at scale. And then, of course, there's the governance, the legal uh, uh, obligation of, of being a steward of the company uh, and complying and regulatory compliance and things like that as well. So it's a pretty broad uh, spectrum of skills that senior executives like that bring. Right. And and Jeff are just extraordinary executives. When, when you've seen, I don't think you've ever been on a, a, a board that where the company has had a spectacular failure, but if you think about boards like Theranos or BTX, um, you know, that had a lot of, a lot of good board members. Um, what, what do you think, what do you think goes wrong? I was on one of those boards. It's called Global Eagle Entertainment. Uh, we competed with GoGo. We provided in-flight entertainment to Southwest and other companies. 
And the company had a fundamentally difficult business that was low margin. If you're selling something to airlines and there's only a handful of airlines, it's just a tough business to be in. In fact, Priceline started out selling airline tickets and fortunately figured out that the hotel business is much better than the airline business and is now 90 plus percent hotels and only a small percentage of airlines. Uh, so we start out with a difficult business at Global Eagle. And then we made, and, and then we wanted to diversify away from Southwest. So we bought a company providing similar kind of internet connectivity to ships. And it was a big mistake. The, the, uh, the company we acquired uh, had not been well run. They didn't have happy customers. The revenue didn't grow the way we expected to. And we, the merger integration was, was poorly done. And so we took on a lot of debt. We missed our numbers and then we were in default with the covenants of the debt. And uh, then, then COVID, and then I, I ended up re resigning for the board after a number of years. Uh, and then when COVID happened, you know, airline travel stopped and the company went into bankruptcy. So uh, what did I learn from that? <laughs> I learned uh, the number one thing is we should have executed our existing business better before we took on an acquisition. We were concerned about the Southwest risk, so we, we made the acquisition defensively, and uh, I think that was a mistake. We just should have said, look, let's continue taking the risk until we can fix our own business, uh, and then make sure we had the ability to integrate the acquisition. So I think we were too impatient uh, to grow revenue without making sure we could do it efficiently and effectively and, and have a, a business model that worked in our core business. Interesting, um, and probably some very unhappy board meetings uh, along the way. It was a challenge. Yeah. All right, let me close with uh, a final quick question for you. If you had to give one piece of advice to CEOs that are watching this or listening to this, uh, one piece of advice for founders about how to most effectively scale, whether scaling themselves as a leader, scaling their team, scaling their company, their board, uh, what's, what's one thought you would leave founders with? Well, I, I would, I, I'll leave two thoughts. One is it's very good idea to meet people who are at the scale you want to be both uh, and recruit them to your board or meet other CEOs and, and try to just get a sense of what the future is going to be like. But then uh, the, the famously uh, Paul Graham, founder of Y Combinator said, do things that don't scale. So when Airbnb started, the two founders took personally took images of lots of apartments to make the image quality better on the site. And they obviously couldn't do that with a million apartments. But the idea is initially do it things that don't scale, but then you have to do the second start step, which is then scale it, which means then hire photographers and create software for the photographers to upload their photos and do something which where if you double the revenue, you're not doubling your headcount. And so what is what is the definition of scale in, in my mind? It's it's exactly that. It's wherever you are now, if you double your revenue, Will you double your headcount or only grow your headcount by 50%? If you can grow your headcount by 50%, then you're scaling. If it's 100%, you're not scaling. So what are the systems and processes that you need to put in place to achieve that scalability? I love that. Thank you. Um, and thanks for uh, uh, for talking to me for a while today. First of all, it's always good to see you. And uh, I appreciate your uh, your stories and wisdom for our, our uh, founder audience. That was a lot of fun, Matt. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Bolster, the new way to find the right executives. We supercharge startup growth by matching CEOs with transformational executives, mentors, and board members without the hassle of traditional talent sourcing. 
Start searching for free at bolster.com.